Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Boyson, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And I want to thank all of my listeners who come from around the world to listen to words of wisdom from my authors. And today, joining me from Seattle is Paul Shoemaker. And Paul is the author of a new book, Can't Not Do, The Compelling Social Drive That Changes Our World. Good day to you, Paul. Good morning, Greg. How are you? Well, it's great having you on Inside Personal Growth, and it's uh, an opportunity that uh, I really appreciate being able to speak with you, because this is something that's near and dear to my heart and working on a big project myself. But I'm going to let my listeners know just a tad bit about you. Um, Paul is the founding president of Social Venture Partners International, a global network of thousands of social entrepreneurs, philanthropists and businesses and community leaders in 39 cities and eight countries. Uh, with insights from 17 years of his unique vantage point, he is a global thought leader on how individuals can be effective social change agents. In 2011 and 2012, Paul was named one of the top 50 influential people in the nonprofit sector by Nonprofit Time. Paul, great to have you on the show and opportunity to spend a few minutes with you. You know, what I, I really appreciated about you is you started this book off in the prologue uh, with a story about your amazing good friend, and I hope I pronounce his name right, Bill Henningsgaard, is that correct? Henningsgaard. Henningsgaard, yes. And his death in a small plane crash. Uh, how did your good friend's death really kind of catalyze you to become even more proactive in the world of social change? Yep. It's a great question. And I, I really wrestled with whether to start the book that way, but I talked to his wife and she was very supportive of it. So what is there at the start of the book is very authentic. Um, he was a member of FTP and that's the journey that I've been on for 17 years. And the guy was just fantastic. He was effective in the community. He was a change agent. He was a can't not do person in every sense of why I wrote the book. And he and his son tragically died in a plane accident two years ago out east when they were out looking at colleges. And I was sort of had started to interview and talk to people about writing something. I didn't know what the title of it would be or what it would be about. But again, it was about this journey I've been able to take alongside people that wanted to create change, not just in their own lives, but in their community. And he was one of the folks I had interviewed. And losing Bill and losing Max was just something that really galvanized my heart and my soul to say, I got to get at this. And I think I have a message that's important and of value to people out there in the world. And I better get at my work. So it was for sort of the worst possible reason, absolutely a galvanizing reason to get to work to write this book. Yeah, it certainly was. And, and for my listeners uh, to go to the prologue of a book and read a story like this really kind of galvanizes you and really gets you to understand your passion behind this. And I can see it in the way the book was written, the way it was laid out, to help individuals really start to take action. And that's what this is about. Now, you state that you believe that we have the technology and that we don't need more solutions to solve some of our greatest social needs. You're convinced that what we need is more human and social capital. Why do you believe this is so? And how can we galvanize more people to take action towards solving uh, many of our social problems and ills? Yep. So uh, I don't mean it sort of in some airy-fairy 
you know, pie in the sky sense. I'm not naive. We always, you know, we always need money. Money's a good thing. But my point of the book is, particularly in America, if you look at the capital, financial capital that we have deployed to solve social problems, it's trillions of dollars. And so we really don't lack for money. And in terms of solutions, the book is sort of littered with examples of it. And I could go on and on. We know how to solve a lot of social problems. And in fact, in the last generation, things like teen pregnancy, violent crime have declined in half. And you sort of wouldn't know that from reading the headlines. So I want folks to know that there are solutions to problems out there, though they may not know that, that I believe we have enough money to really address a lot of them. And what what we lack the most is that human and social capital. And what the book is all about, Greg, is how to activate people, not just to be inspired, but to act, to do, to become empowered, to do more work in their community. And I, I layer it through a series of seven questions and try to sort of take some of the wonkiness and complexity out of it and get it up to a, a level of questions that people can interact with and relate to. And if folks will take the time to walk through those questions themselves and be thoughtful about it and be intentional about what they focus on in their community, I think that they exist and they go to work in this world where there are resources and there are good ideas and there are solutions. So it's not like you're walking into this vacuum in this black hole where there's no solutions. There's actually great stuff going on in each community and it just waiting for people like us to be catalysts to help make those parts come together. Yeah, whether it's joining another group or movement that's already yep. uh, needs help or it's a cause that you are personally passionate about that you want to spin up into a nonprofit. I know I have a nonprofit of my own. You know, I was I was recently interviewing Rebecca Coster, the author of The Watchman's Rattle. I'm not certain if you recognize that book title or not. And she mentioned that one of the super memes, in other words, these beliefs that we have running, is that these super memes go from civilization to generation to generation, and that we still have this business community focused on profits. And as long as that meme exists, that will be challenged to solve many of these social problems. Do you believe that we can solve the social problems while we still have so much of big business in the United States and around the world focused on profit? So I spent 50 years, 15 years in the private sector before I took on this work, Greg. My personal answer to that is an emphatic yes. And in this sense, I think what it asks is in today's world, in the year 2015, what it does ask business to do is to broaden their sense or broaden their definition of what profit means. So it's not just a financial profit. Because by the way, a nonprofit, as you well know, needs to make more money than they spend. <laughs> so right. they need to, quote, make a profit, unquote, to be a viable ongoing enterprise. So I have no problem with a company making a financial profit. I also just want them to be mindful of a community profit, a social responsibility profit. And I think increasingly, you know, 20 years ago, the corporate social responsibility, the CSR movement was sort of greenwashing. But an awful lot of companies, I think today, they authentically mean that they're involved in communities and they have a social responsibility to address public education and poverty and homelessness. And the positive side of it is that, you know, businesses are two thirds of the economy and the amount of not just financial, but human resources that exist inside of companies if you can get them motivated and connected to community issues and causes, they not only can be, you know, not 
a negative, they can be a really positive force in solving some of these social challenges. So I think a lot of what's happened last 10 years has been a positive trend about how business can be a positive, can be a positive force in the community. It isn't always that way, but I think the opportunity and the leverage of them doing so has gotten a lot better in the last 10 years. Mm, I would agree. I, I would agree. And hopefully over our lifetime and into our children's lifetime, we'll see a shift right. of actually what it means to be a corporation and the social responsibility that they need to take to solve some of these social problems that exist out there. You know, your book is loaded with great stories, and that's what makes a, a great book as well. And you talk about a story, uh, a Jeff Carr, who started Summer Night Lights mm -hmm. to work with young people at risk. I'd like you to take this story and use it as a way to kind of convey to our listeners what propelled one person uh, to, to do this and to really make a major shift in crime. Uh, yeah. in, in major cities. But he's a, he's a good example because from, from a number of reasons, he is, one of the things I do in this book is these are not, it's not about Bono and Bill Gates. <laughs> it's about everyday folks, everyday heroes, if you will, like you and me. And in Jeff's case, kid in college, uh, really uh, strong soccer player, goes on a trip with his soccer team and goes to play on an island somewhere and is exposed to poverty like he's never seen before. So for him, there was sort of that almost like epiphany moment. Wow, I can't believe some of the rest of the world lives this way. He went back to school, changed his major. He went to work and made his career in the community work. So one part of sort of what he focused on change in the community happened to him sort of like in an instant. But there's another part of what he ended up doing that happened to him over the course of several years. And again, everybody's journey could be unique. So in Jeff's case, he was doing this work in the community, sort of alongside him, uh, lots of cities in America have been making progress on gang violence. And then back in the um, late 90s, there were a few summers where gang violence really spiked in Los Angeles. And the mayor at the time, uh, Baragosa, said, we got to do something about this. And he went and got Jeff Carr to be his gangs are the wrong term for it, but that was sort of the shorthand that they used. And one of the things that Jeff believed in is he thought that kids and gangs, for the most part, were kids that just didn't have a didn't have the opportunity to create the right self-image of themselves. Not only is it simple, but he really believed the kids had that potential. And so he created this program along with lots of other folks in the community um, and the kids themselves and the police called Summer Night Lights. And it was about opening up the parks in Los Angeles in the middle of the night in the summer. And that became sort of a first flashpoint that began to significantly reduce crime in those city parks. And over the course of time, what it also did was it sort of started in motion the relationship between police, community, and kids. It's still got lots of challenges, don't get me wrong, but it's evolved and it's gotten a lot better. And the rate of crime, violent crime and gang violence in Los Angeles has gone down significantly marketedly in just the last 10 years. And again, if you just read the headline, you'd have no idea about that. But Jeff was the kind of guy that just sort of like he was the right person at the right time. But that was only because, as they say, opportunity, luck is when opportunity meets preparation. Jeff has sort of spent a lot of his life getting ready for this moment. And then the opportunity presented itself. 
Most definitely. And I mean, the crime statistics that you quoted in the book from like 25%, I think it was, I can't remember the next exact number down to like 8%. It's just a significant change uh, in actual crime. Yeah, it it was amazing what it did. Um, And you see this happening a lot with even ex-convicts who come out and work with other ex-cons that are coming out. I just was recently at a social film festival at at uh, Irwin Jacobs Center here in San Diego and uh, amazing some of the things that are happening when somebody just cares enough and that's really yep. what this is all about take enough time to care with some compassion and heart and you can change uh, the world now you have seven questions you talked about them earlier that get at the heart of why certain people reach their greatest potential for social change um, can you tell the listeners what they are and how they would use these questions to ignite their passion around a cause that's close to them and near and dear to their heart? Yep, absolutely. So one of the things that I really believe, Greg, agree with everything you said, and what matters is when that heart and that mind get focused and they have intentionality about what they want to do in the community. It's not that we're a mile wide and an inch deep, but when folks find that focus and they go deep, that's when change happens, again, not just for their own life, but in their community. So the seven questions, the first three questions are really sort of about how do you find that focus? And I ask people, what are you a determined optimist about? Who are you at your core? And what are you willing to go through hard places for? And there's obviously a lot of depth to all three of those questions, but they, they really represent sort of meat reverse engineering conversations I've had with dozens of people and, you know, experiences with thousands of people over 17 years. And the can't not do expression is what came out of many of their mouths verbatim. And that's where the title of the book came from of those folks that I think had really answered those three questions at a level of depth to find that conviction, to find their focus and to find their can't not do. So those are the first three questions. The next three questions in the book, Greg, they're about, how someone sort of shows up to do that work once they found that focus. Mm-hmm. And I think these are really important in the world today. Uh, can you be an active listener? Are you ready to be humble and humbled? And do you believe that one plus one equals three? And what it's about is somebody needs to come into this work with humility as a listener and as a connector. And those are again, oversimplified statements to a much richer discussion and thought process that somebody needs to go through. But those three attributes to me are the ones that I know that show up in people that are really significant change agents in the world today. And the seventh question is simply, what is your can't not do? And I try to sort of roll all those things together with a few more stories and try to bring all of those questions together sort of into one concluding question. But it's really about a person being thoughtful and going deep on each of those questions, maybe one at a time, maybe you take three of them, Maybe you sit down with your family, maybe you talk to friends, maybe you're a journaler, and going through the thoughtful process of answering those questions for yourself. And if you do, I believe it will take you down a pathway to help you find that focus in your community and in your life. It's, it's so good to have a book like this because it's a guide, it's a guidepost for people. Um, I hope so. And the reality is, well, it will be because for those that pick it up and have the passion, that's the key, to do something. This becomes a great guidepost and a way to direct them. The way it's laid out is is very well done as well. 
the inspiring mm-hmm. stories as well. Now, you're, you're obviously not the founder of Social Venture Partners, and uh, I, I don't want to mess up your other five partners' names <laughs> um, because they do have interesting names. I could Maggie and Doug Walker, Bill Nurcom, is it? Newcomb. Newcomb, Ida Cole, uh, Paul Brainard, is it? Brainerd. Brainerd. Okay. Yep. So what drove these people to really mm-hmm. start SVP, and are they still involved today? Correct. Uh, the answer to question is yes. Um, so each of those folks were people that, this was Seattle in the late 90s. Uh-huh. Uh, Seattle in the late 90s, you probably could have started a toilet business and it would have worked. Um, so there was just such a sense of possibility and potential. And each of these folks sort of saw this opportunity that was wealth being created in the tech boom. And there were people, you know, sort of at an age of life where they had maybe more opportunity than they would have had at this stage of their life before. And I think also just the consciousness of how folks thought about their business and their professional lives and how they thought about their lives and the degree to which they wanted to be involved in community work, not just with their money, but again, with their brains and their heart and their, their social capital, they sort of saw that set of trends and said, we need to create a model of philanthropy and community engagement that isn't just about writing checks. It isn't just about volunteering one off. But it's really about an ongoing community network of peers of like-minded individuals that want to get directly engaged in causes, in work, in the community. And that's the essence of what SCP is. So they created it in Seattle. Um, I was the first director that they hired, the, the ED, the guy to run the thing. Mm-hmm. And I did that in 1998. And the emergence of it in what is now 39 cities and eight countries around the world, which is just hard to fathom, was because people from other cities, Greg, started calling us and saying, hey, I like that idea. I like that model. What about Phoenix? What about Vancouver? You know, can we do that here? And, and we started, started to open our eyes up and say, wow, this is maybe not just a Seattle thing. So, you know, we, over time, we created another organization that's the hub that helps other cities get started. And then maybe five years ago or so, somebody called from Beijing and they called us from Tokyo and they called us from Bangalore. And, now, holy moly, now you have something that's global. So those five folks were the ones that had the vision to sort of see that opportunity. And I would say the last thing is I think their vision was good, really good in 1998. I think it's even more powerful. It even fits the world of 2015 better than it did 17 years ago. Well, they certainly have been able to keep the momentum and keep it going, yep. like you said, because there was a thirst out in these communities um, to actually have something like this. And you guys had created a model and I know I've been to a couple of your meetings, so I know how it works, but right. um, it, it is truly an interesting meeting. Now are, is, are you guys a nonprofit as well? The SVP? Yes. Okay. Yep. All right. So you mentioned more than ever in the, in the past 10 to 20 years, just a few people, uh, can do so that just a few people can do so much. You said there's advances in globalization, connectedness, technology um, are all kind of converging to become force multipliers. And you state that this convergence can either increase the magnitude of social problems or accelerate the solutions to them. And you used a great story about how quickly SARS. Um, yeah. was was uh, identified, um, solution found. Tell the SARS story because it really does kind of 
just go to the light in the center of how quickly convergence like this can happen. Problems can be solved when there's one person out there who's driven to make it happen. Correct. And SARS, like I say in the book, if you're like me, you might hear that term and go, wow, that, that seems familiar. And then you <laughs> might remember back to 2004 when it was this ep epidemic that felt like it was going to spread around the world. And Oh, I remember it well. I mean, everybody was concerned about traveling to other countries yes. and picking up this, uh, this, this uh, lung kind of disease, yep. I guess it was. Yeah. Correct. So SARS is such a, uh, an emblematic um, example. <clears throat> That's two words that say the same thing of the kinds of things that can happen in this world, both negative and positive. So the spread of SARS around the world that probably doesn't happen 50 to a hundred years ago either, just because people don't travel like they do. The world's not as connected as it is. So maybe it doesn't happen in the first place, but then the flip side of it is when it did start to happen, the way that it got discovered was literally one doctor treated one of those people, those original people at the French hospital in Vietnam. And he was sort of the first individual to recognize this wasn't just sort of the flu or some virus. This is something really serious. And both he and that patient tragically died, but he rose, he sort of raised his hand and said, there's something more going on here. And that was what started the flywheel turning. And what was powerful about it is, and this is true of a lot of medical and, and uh, health issues. Again, there are people that know how to solve certain problems and challenges, but lots of times they live in silos or they work in silos. Not because they're bad people, that's just the structure they've been given. And they're not connected to other people that might have, think about this like they're putting together a puzzle. And someone over here has got 10 pieces and someone over there has got 15 pieces. If we just put the right people together, we could put the puzzle together. And in the case of SARS, it was such a sense of urgency. There were 11 research labs that were part of the World Health Organization network that normally sort of work independently. And maybe they checked in with each other, but they just had this massive collaboration and they shared information and data immediately real time. And they, they identified the problem. They sequenced the virus and in a few months, SARS sort of declined and went away. So the speed and the rapidity, which with, with which they use those multipliers to solve a problem, again, shows how fast the problem can happen. And it also shows in this world today how fast a problem can get solved. Yeah, it, it was amazingly fast. Uh, one man's actions in particular, uh, this doctor in Viet, was it Vietnam? No, it wasn't yes. Vietnam. Yeah, it wasn't. Yep. Okay. Yeah, just it, it, incredibly quick. Um, and I remember it because I remember that time and I remember traveling during that time yep. as well. Now, you, you have all these great stories, and, and I'm going to have you uh, give us this uh, the story about David Risher. I, yep. I think I'm pronouncing it right. It was eradicating yep. illiteracy in Vietnam. And it, it really goes to the heart of, you know, here's this metal storage shed. People don't can't get into the walk. Yeah. Um, and he founds this World Reader Organization. Um, yep. Can you tell us? a little bit more about that because all these stories really are designed for the reader to get an idea of just how simple an idea can come about like that and how quickly someone can change uh, something like illiteracy in a country like Vietnam. Correct. <clears throat> so in David's case, he's in Ecuador, <clears throat> uh, not Vietnam. Um, <clears throat> so 
he, David is the first guy that leads off the first chapter, which is what are you a determined optimist about? And the story that you started to tell Greg was he was on a, one of those sort of working vacations with his family and they were volunteering at an orphanage in Ecuador. Mm-hmm. And there was this building across the grounds that David asked the director of the orphanage, what is that? He said, it's the library and we've lost the key. At the same time, David had his two kids with him and they had brought their e-readers with them to sort of study while they're on a vacation. And what you have to know about David too is growing up, he was a kid whose family barely made it by. And one of the most important things in his life growing up was he was a reader. He loved books. Yeah, he was a voracious reader, according to correct stories. So, yeah. so, so just put together sort of like you can almost picture yourself in that guy's head. He has this moment of his kids with the e-readers where he came from and the kind of person he was and this orphanage across the field. And to him, that was just this catalytic moment. Again, as I said to you before, some folks sort of have these epiphanous moments. Other folks, it takes many years over the course of their lifetime to sort of arrive at what it is they want to dive into. But for David, that moment for him, everybody else probably felt that's a bummer. David said, there's something I can not only can, but literally that I can't not do something about. And that was what galvanized him to create World Reader. And one of the things that's so powerful about listening to someone like David, I don't know what he thinks about poverty or what he thinks about homelessness. I know the one thing that he really does care about. And if you sit down and you talk to him about the kids in third world countries that want to read, again, if you read the media, we could have this sort of pathetic view of them or this sympathetic view of them. David's view is these kids are awesome. They have just as much of a voracious appetite to learn as my own kid. They just don't have the tools. And I'm going to help give them the tools to do it. So he created World Reader, worldreader.org. And he has spent the last five years of his life, and well, many more years of his life, trying to work towards uh, decreasing and eventually eliminating illiteracy in the third world. Well, I hope he's getting the help from Amazon or Apple or any of the others where they're donating the e-readers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I should add one more thing about David real quick. One thing I try to do in the book, too, you've pointed this out nicely, Greg, is give people examples of different kinds of folks from different walks of life. So maybe the reader doesn't see themselves in all 16 characters, but they can definitely see themselves in a handful of those people. So some folks will identify with David, some will identify with Jeff, some will identify with Heidi, et cetera. I want everybody reading it to be able to identify with somebody in the book. Yeah. And they'll, they'll identify with Dwight and the hunger project. And, you know, there, there's enough stories in here for my listeners um, not only stories, but really uh, poignant questions to get you motivated, inspired, driven uh, to actually either join a cause or, you know, start your own. Uh, now, you have this 20 questions for a personal checklist. You actually put it all the way in the appendix of the book. I had to go all the way there to find it. Um, but you also, you have two parts to it. One is 20 questions as a personal checklist on finding one's focus. And then you have these other questions on how will you do this? You tell the listeners, uh, that have a passion for social change, um, that in your estimation, where to start and how to sustain. I think when you first start off a nonprofit, what happens is, you know, I had my drive too as well and started it and then it faltered and, you know, and then you got to get up and, and continue to keep moving. 
and it can be challenging. So you either, you know, move from one to another one, which I'm now working on. So how do you sustain that? What in your estimation is yeah. the systemic opportunity for people to say, okay, I'm really committed to this for a lifetime? That's such an important question. Um, and really underneath, so you, your point about the appendices, what I did that sort of answers some of what you asked me earlier is I took each of the three questions, the pairs of three questions, and I give in the appendix some more depth, some more questions so folks can really drill into those things more deeply for themselves. And that's the purpose of those questions in the appendix. Um, but the, and the point of the first three questions, determined optimist, who are you at your core? What are you willing to go through hard places for? The, one of the core underlying reasons for those three questions, Greg, is that I want folks to not just sort of take on a cause that I don't even, even feel good or that their friend might have invited them to or that they heard something about once and it seemed interesting. If folks will take the time to really drill into those three questions, and third one of those three is, what are you willing to go through hard places for? Like, what do I care so much about that I know, just like you said, you're going to hit hard times. If you really get into something deep enough and you really care about it enough and you stick with it long enough, it's going to hurt and it's going to be challenging to get through. Just like the stories of entrepreneurs in the tech sector that we love to glorify. So I think the way that folks find that stickiness, Greg, is by not just doing it by chance, not doing it just sort of by whim, but really thinking deeply about those three questions with intentionality so that you identify that cause, just like David does. He cares so much about reading. That's what he came from, and he's willing to go through the crap to see positive things happen on the other end. Yeah, and and I agree with you. The intentionality is, is yep. a key factor, and also um, your willingness, as you said, to just continue to forge forward, you know, it's a Winston Churchill statement, you know, uh, march on, you know, just you've got to march Absolutely. on. Absolutely. You've got to be, have that that fortitude to march on. And it takes that when you get involved with any social venture. Um, yep. They don't just all happen automatically over the Internet. Um, and, you know, if you put up a, a crowdfunding page and people beat their way to your door, you know, you don't know how many times people have actually put – something up to do that. Yep. Um, if you were to leave my listeners with some parting thoughts on can't not do, Paul, what would you want to galvanize here as the opportunity for the people is to take away from your book, um, you know, to get started? Yep. <clears throat> so the things I want folks to know and that we have talked about are that the social challenges out there in the world they're hard and they're solvable and that we have the resources and solutions and what we lack most are everyday heroes that are willing to commit themselves and that there is a pathway for people to find out what that thing is that they should focus on to have the most impact. That's mm -hmm. sort of the short answer right there. And that's what the book will walk somebody through. That's what the stories will be emblematic of. Um, my website is Paul Shoemaker just like it's, uh, sounds, it's spelled S-H-O-E-M-A-K-E. Dot O-R-G. Dot O-R-G, correct. So paulshoemaker.org has got the book. It's got resources. It's got articles that I've written. It's got videos that I've done, et cetera. So there's a ton of resources there. 
And if somebody sort of goes through all that and you're still stuck, send me a note. Um, I will get back to you. I'm, I'm all about one-to-one -one contact, and I'd love to help somebody. And that website will also tell you where to go buy the book and all that kind of good stuff, too. And also, they could go to the Social Venture Partners website yes. uh, if they want and actually join a meeting and figure yep. uh, and learn about what you guys are about. So that's in 39, uh, it's in 39 locations and in eight countries. Is that right? That is correct. And the main website, socialventurepartners.org. And if you go there and you click in the upper right corner and do the drop down, it'll show you um, the cities that we're in. And if yours is there, you can reach out to somebody locally. Yeah. And I found that meeting to be very, uh, as I say, I'll use the word again, galvanizing, because the kind of people there are like-minded people. Yep. So you're going to have great, great discussions um, with people who are like-minded with you. And I think when you put, uh, you know, committed people together, as they say, uh, you can forge new opportunities to solve social challenges uh, in your neighborhood, in the world, for, as far yep. as that goes. Paul, it's been a pleasure having you on Inside Personal Growth and sharing some of your wisdom and insight. I really appreciate you taking the time to impart this uh, thought leadership upon my listeners. And uh, thanks so much for being on. Thank you, Greg.